Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast with the Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade, Senator David Fawcett, and John Blackburn from the Institute of Integrated Economic Research Australia. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. I'm joined today by uh, Catherine Ziesing, Managing Director of Australian Defence Magazine. G'day, Kath. Hi, Grant. Also joined by Senator David Fawcett, the Chair of the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. G'day, David. How are you doing? Hey, Grant. I'm well, thank you. And our fourth person today is John Blackburn, and he's the Chair for the Institute for Integrated Economic Research Australia. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Grant. Good day. Okay, so the purpose of today's episode is to have a discussion regarding uh, the sovereign nature of supply chains, uh, rather topical at the moment. So, uh, David, if you'd like to open us up with a a background on uh, what's going on in that space. Well, Grant, the uh, committee that I chair, the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade, has launched an inquiry looking at the implications of COVID-19 on Australia's foreign affairs, relationships at defence, Uh, our trade and human rights, which are the four areas that the committee looks at and uh, integral to that in terms of our ability to function as a first world nation and to defend ourselves uh, are supply chains. And one of the things that a number of us, including John Blackburn and some of us in the parliament have been arguing for some time, is that there are some areas of some supply chains that are quite critical that we understand to the extent that where necessary we can control if we are to be free as a sovereign government to make decisions that are in the national interest. And uh, one of the things that the pandemic has really raised awareness of is that there are some critical areas within things, for example, our health system. Uh, Worldwide, we have seen uh, countries scrambling and states competing against each other, uh, particularly in America to purchase uh, personal protective equipment. And people have been surprised to find how exposed the whole world is to supply chains that we don't necessarily control, either in their entirety or where there are critical parts of that supply chain. So that's what this inquiry is looking at at the moment. David, what what kind of people and bodies and organisations are taking part in that um, inquiry? Like, who's putting in submissions? Well, we're getting submissions from a range of people, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, individual pharmaceutical companies, manufacturers of personal protective equipment because the, the health side of this pandemic has been so prevalent. But we also have submissions from a far broader sector of the community and government departments uh, who are concerned. And the, the challenge here is to find the sensible balance between those who would almost pushes towards a socialist command-driven economy where the government dictates everything. And that's, uh, history has shown that's a highway to poverty. Uh, Or on the other extreme, those who would go back to a completely free market supply chain. Uh, And there's no doubt that free trade and the free market has underpinned uh, much of the quality of life and the increase in wealth. But this pandemic has really highlighted what a number of us have been saying for some years, that there are some areas of some supply chains where we do need a level of government intervention. I guess, JB, this is a, a space you've been working in for quite some time, looking at various parts of the economy. Can you tell us a bit about the work that the IIER is doing in this space? 
the last couple of years, we've been looking at components of our supply chains and looking at our resilience. And, and what's happened is the coronavirus pandemic's exposed a global lack of resilience. And in our view, this is the result of a collective failure of preparedness, where nations haven't assessed and acted on their national risks and vulnerabilities in the face of a rapidly changing world. And when the pandemic arrived, they've reacted. And whilst we've reacted really well in this country, frankly, we weren't prepared. And so some of our reports have covered things like, you know, 90% of our medicines are imported, 90% of our fuels, 98% of our imports by volume are actually carried on foreign flag or foreign owned ships. And what really concerned us as we looked into each of these areas, this has happened without having an integrated risk analysis for any of these areas. And therefore, what we see is we've in effect left our resilience and therefore our sovereignty and security to the largely foreign owned market. So has this been uh, driven mostly by people's race to the bottom mentality on pricing primarily? What's happened here is that we've had 30 years of prosperity, which has been excellent. And to a degree, we've then got rather complacent. And the just-in-time market approach does produce the most cost-efficient way of doing it, the lowest cost. And that's what we've come used to. So when we haven't had a crisis, things are working pretty well. So when I've been talking about fuels, when the Department of Energy said, look, we haven't had a problem for 30 years. What are you worried about? Well, now we've had a problem. And what we've seen is that the lowest cost can, in a global crisis, have a very high price attached to it. And that's the discussion that we have to have today. David, your, your work on the committee there is obviously looking at a range of issues when it comes to supply chains. Were there, obviously COVID has brought health to the fore, were there other, I guess, national sovereignty levers that you were looking at pulling in terms of energy and fuel and food and water? We are considering a, a broad scope of uh, critical enablers that enable us to be a first world nation, uh, which includes not only our health system, but defence, our transport system, uh, our finance system. Uh, but probably the one that is easiest to use because it's been front of mind and people have seen uh, the lived examples is personal protective equipment. And uh, as a, a former test pilot, uh, I, I look at systems engineering that tries to understand a system in its totality and it tries to understand what are the failure modes and how critical are the effects of that failure and, and therefore what could we do about that. And so the reason we've seen such a scramble for personal protective equipment is that surgical masks and in particular respirators, so uh, P2, P3 respirators that are the things that, uh, for example, a anaesthetist would wear to stop the aerosols that contain all the viruses entering their body, where they are in short supply uh, or people are using ones that aren't certified for medical use, we have seen health systems collapse. And so in places like Europe, where we've seen health systems overwhelmed, often one of the critical elements that's caused that failure is the ability of people to have sufficient supply of suitably certified respirators. So when we then look at Australia, we've seen a couple of companies stand up and uh, Medcon of, in Victoria have been making masks. Detmold here in South Australia have looked at both masks and respirators. But as you track back through their supply chain, you realise that they not only need the machines to make the masks, they also need the inputs. Uh, and the most critical one of those is a melt-blown product, uh, spun bond as some people call it, but it's the filtering material that actually does the work. And Australia closed its last commercial melt-blown facility, which was in Albury in 2015. 
because it couldn't compete with people in uh, the subcontinent and North Asia. Uh, and so even though we've stood up the ability to manufacture masks, we have had to rely on exports from other countries uh, for the inputs. Now, industry's working hard to overcome that, but that's the kind of supply chain mapping that we need to do, even down to who makes the resin that is needed to manufacture melt-blown material. Uh, and so I've written some pieces uh, that ASPI have published, one uh, looking at how would we potentially make that supply chain more resilient? Uh, and there's a few areas there, but predominantly it comes down to uh, giving a market signal to Australian manufacturers that there will be sufficient demand either through aggregated Commonwealth procurement or Commonwealth and state procurement. Uh, potentially, you could expand it to sectors of the private sector such that uh, there would be a product that people are comfortable is uh, certified for use and is at least competitive uh, in terms of price so those companies remain viable into the future. JB, I'd be interested to get your thoughts particularly around fuel and energy. Uh, you've been working and writing in this space for quite some time. That report with the NRMA that you did a few years ago on fuel security, I think, was a, an excellent signal to a lot of people that we haven't got our act together in this space. Has much changed since you released that report? Well, essentially, uh, I think that we had a, a Senate inquiry and then in 2018, the Joint Standing Committee on uh, Intelligence and Security, chaired by Andrew Hasty. Uh, was looking at critical infrastructure and came out with a task for us to do a liquid fuel security review. And, and the key part of that was to let's do a proper risk analysis. Well, that was supposed to be done by the end of 2018. I understand that the report was sent to the minister at the end of last year, but we still don't have it in public. Now, when we're looking at our resilience, the very first thing you have to do as a nation is look at your risks and vulnerabilities. And therefore, that type of analysis for fuels, but it has to go across all these other areas, as the senators mentioned, is the first thing you have to do. We are still today in 2020 not having that really open and broad discussion about what our risks and vulnerabilities are in the fuel market area. As an example, it hasn't been impacted during coronavirus, but it's a vulnerability we need to address. If you do your risk and vulnerability analysis, it allows you to do what the military does, for example. And then it's when you can look at your preparedness. Given those risks and vulnerabilities, how do I produce readiness of the force, or in this case, Australia's capabilities overall, and how can I look at sustainability? So readiness, sustainability gives you preparedness. If you don't have preparedness, you can't be resilient. And so what we're seeing is this reluctance to do uh, forward-looking risk analysis across all of these areas means that we're stuck in a reaction model. And so on the fuel side, we're going to see some interesting challenges on the viability of refineries in Australia with the changing demand and also the lowering cost of oil. And globally, we're seeing parts of the supply chain under significant stress financially. So there are risks that on a global scale, parts of the shale oil production will go bankrupt, parts of the distribution chain will fail. There'll be a problem getting credit there. That's another aspect that could affect us. So the first thing is let's do that risk and vulnerability analysis and let's have a, an adult conversation in Australia what the risks are. It does seem like there's been some initial, um, dare I say, knee-jerk reactions. Uh, I noted uh, recently we've had the comment that we do have our fuel reserves. They're just located in the USA, which then raises the whole question of, uh, as you were talking before, it's the supply chain of bringing everything in from overseas, which is very difficult if we're being blockaded. We have three to four days of oil supply that's talked about being purchased in America. We don't have any Australian flagships to get it here. 
and we only have about three weeks of diesel. So if there was a major disruption, uh, then that oil in the US is irrelevant. I know the minister's talking about looking at building storage capacity in Australia, but if we cannot guarantee or assure ourselves that those remaining four refineries will continue to function, storing oil is pointless. You can only store refined fuels, and that has certain life limits. So the very first thing to do before we start buying and doing bids is saying, what's the problem space? What's our strategy to deal with this? Ideally, I'd like to see a refining industry continue in Australia because that gives two things. It gives you the option of refining your own oil, and also it gives you the option of importing oil as well as refined fuels. So that's very important for resilience and diversity of sources. But in the absence of a risk analysis and plan, I can only conclude that buying some oil in the US is opportunistic and might address some of the IEA's initial concerns because we are still the only member country that doesn't meet our stock on requirements. So granted, it also goes to some of the enabling capabilities that Australia needs if we're going to remain a first world nation. So John used the example of there's no point bringing oil in if you can't refine it into the, uh, the, the diesel or the petrol or the aviation fuel that you need. Uh, but you also need other elements that the just-in-time system has tended to remove. And, and again, I'll come back to PPE because it's such a classic example. Uh, what we found was that when people started looking at things like respirators, uh, it became quite quickly apparent that Australia, because we had become so conditioned to being able to buy things just in time from someone else, that we accepted at face value their certification and we had lost the ability to test against the Australian-New Zealand standard to be able to say, this is actually fit for purpose. And so only through COVID have we re-established with the CSIRO and one of the universities the ability to do testing on things like N95 or P3 respirators to understand if they're actually compliant with the Australian-New Zealand standard. And one of the manufacturers that has invested in this area has found that some of the product that was sent to Australia in terms of melt-blown product didn't actually meet the standard that it was um, on paper ticked off to meet. And so you know, I used to say this when I ran Australia's flight test centre, one of the things that differentiates a first world country from a third world country is the ability to test and certify as fit for purpose. And so part of the challenge is being able to identify those areas where we need to resurrect and sustain those kind of enabling capabilities. Just to pick up on what the Senator's been saying there, I'll give you another example. If you approach this in a systems way and you look at the total problem, then you can work out an integrated strategy. But let's now come back to the ventilators. Before pandemic, we had about 2,200 ICU beds in the country. We had 3.7 total hospital beds per 1,000 people, that's 25% less than the OECD average. So we 3.7, Korea about 8, Japan 12. So our hospital system didn't have much surge capacity. It's good that we've been able to acquire additional ventilators, about 4,500 with a goal of going to 7,000. Not all of those would be intubation ventilators. Some might be an overpressure, but here's the problem. If you purely go and solve that piece, you might miss out on something that's pretty important. To use an intubated ventilator, according to the doctors doing the work in our health studies, you need three specific drugs because you're effectively inducing a coma in the patients. Well, the TGA came out last month and said, look, these drugs are imported and we can't guarantee the supply because it's an international chain. But if we could get 25% more of those three drugs than we had a year ago, then 
here's what we'd be able to do in the country. We could do the normal surgeries, whether it's accidents or illness. And with that extra 25%, we could manage 200 COVID patients a month. Now, I love the idea that we're getting thousands of ventilators, but if we haven't got the drugs you need to use the incubation ones, it's not much bloody use. So we, we need to take a systems view of everything and then come down and say, you know, as the senator said, you can produce masks, but if you haven't got the material, it won't work. We can have ventilators, but if you haven't got the drugs, it won't work. And this is examples of a failure of taking a system approach to a fundamental risk that we're facing as a nation. Gentlemen, the, the, the problem space here seems immense. Um, you know, to mix my analogies here, every thread you pull in a tapestry affects everything else. How do we start eating the elephant? Where, where, where do you begin? Well, you start by being prepared to begin. Um, one of the things that I have been fairly vocal on is that uh, the committee I now chair released a report in 2015 which led to our uh, Defence Industry Policy Statement of 2016, and that introduced this concept of a sovereign defence industry capability. And the intent there was to say we need a framework where we can look at that you know, massive threads, as you as you use that example, and identify which are the ones that are actually critical to enabling us to respond to a a dilemma. Uh, now, whether that's fatigue in an aircraft, whether it's an issue that we've got a new threat that we're facing, we have to modify something for that. There are certain competencies and capabilities that we need to have in order to respond, uh, to adapt, to scale up, to test, to certify as fit for use. And the intent then, having identified those, was that we would use not just the old system of providing small grants here and there, but then buying from offshore, but we would deliberately partner with Australian industry writ large in those areas that we deem to be critical to our sovereign ability as a government to make decisions that are in our own interest. And I have to be honest and say I think Defence has really struggled with that. Uh, by mid-last year, they were supposed to be releasing the implementation plans for sovereign defence industry capability in the 10 areas that they have identified. At the moment, we have two the simplest ones, uh, and yet those implementation plans are the things that should be guiding the submissions that come forward to government as to not so much what we buy but how we buy it uh, in terms of the engagement of both Australia and overseas firms, what we do with IP, what are the competencies and capabilities we need to be developing. Because without that framework, there is nothing to guide the people at the working level uh, and so when you look through, for example, the uh, Defence Procurement Policy Manual, uh, and the last issue of that was just July last year, if you pull up an electronic version, type in the word sovereign in a search engine, it doesn't appear. So this whole uh, policy that government has uh, and the direction we're looking for hasn't been translated down to the working level of people within CASG. Uh, as an exemption or a reason for them to deviate from the Commonwealth procurement rules, which require competition, 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 uh, and value for money is often seen as a price point as opposed to value for money across the life cycle of a piece of equipment, which involves, according to our policy, uh, an understanding of those elements of industry that we should be investing in. Kath, I'd just like to pick up on the point that you raised before. 
it's such a complicated and convoluted problem that we're trying to address. Now, what we're trying to do in the Institute, it sounds a bit simplistic. There are a couple of principles we're trying to suggest. Firstly, look, global trade and diverse supply chains are essential for our economic and social well-being, and that will be the predominant model. So we're not talking about socialism and nationalising things. But what we're suggesting is we need to redesign critical areas, components of our capability and our supply chains under what we're referring to as a smart sovereignty model. So we're referring with smart sovereignty not only a degree of Australian-based manufacturing capability and associated domestic supply chains, because if you can't move it around, it's not much use, but the appropriate R&D facilities, a skilled, experienced workforce. And it also applies in those areas uh, either Australian ownership or a degree of control over critical infrastructure and capabilities that we need here. So it's quite obvious. We certainly need more capability in the examples we talked about, whether it's fuel or in particular medicines. And we need to build that. It will cost us a little more, but if we have a conversation with the Australian public that explains this makes us more resilient and far less vulnerable, I'm sure they will agree. In addition to smart sovereignty, what we've got to do is have trusted supply chains. And the Prime Minister did use that language a few weeks ago. Where we depend upon global imports for critical areas, we must have diverse, transparent supply chains and the ability to verify them. Now, what's evident from the pandemic crisis is the massive global outsourcing and dependence on China for many pharmaceutical ingredients, medicines and other essential supplies. You can call it a trusted supply chain because it's neither transparent nor verifiable. How do we test it? And we can't. And so if we look at those two principles, we start to identify those areas where we need a degree of sovereign capability and be prepared to invest in them. It's not just federal governments. They come and look at it, businesses. Communities have got to start saying we're prepared to pay a small premium in certain areas so we can actually survive. No, you're right, JB. It's, um, there's a lot to consider there. And I know that the IIER is conducting a range of workshops uh, in July and August this year to go through the national resilience framework that you're pulling together. Can you tell us more about that process and how people could perhaps get involved? Absolutely. So what we've seen and, and we're not meaning demeaning by saying this, but we, our society works on an industrial business model. We break everything into stovepipes and we deal in that. You know, think of how the ministerial governments and, and the departments are broken up. What we're trying to look at is, okay, let's look at things like health, energy, industry, agriculture, education, research, information systems, politics, governance, the economy and supply chains. And we're running a series of workshops that look in those areas. Yes, they're stovepipes, but... What we're finding as we run these workshops, that the roadblocks or the things that inhibit them are quite common across all of them. So we're running these workshops over these months. We'll have about 150 people involved from industry, from the unions, from government, from community groups, looking at what the issues are. And then we'll take an integrated view right across all of those areas to say, okay, in terms of our resilience, how do we get where we are today? What do we assume? What are the risks and issues that we really must be addressing for the next decades? And what do we do now and next year and the year after to improve our resilience? So it's pulling that integrated story together. And we're doing this completely pro bono and voluntarily. Um, and we're hoping to produce some constructive contribution to the discussion because being nonpartisan, not tied to industry or anyone else, we're able to bring a very diverse group together and try to make some suggestions about what the next steps are. So, David, I guess to wrap up, what do you hope to achieve through your current committee process? What, what is the end point here for you? 
Well, the end point uh, is that we have a better understanding of what it is uh, that makes us a first world nation, able to make decisions that are in the best interest of our people. And where there are weaknesses in that system, we find ways to address it. Uh, and as John's pointed out, that's, that's not a socialist model where we try and do everything. Uh, but we do need to understand, and part of, the, part of the terms of reference for this current committee inquiry is if we're going to have trusted supply chains, including overseas partners, which is inevitable, I think, for Australia, then how have those partners responded to this pandemic? What are the global-based rules and norms around trade and agreements that have been broken or suspended uh, during this period? We've seen many examples of that. Uh, and how do we engage with partners to identify those areas where we can work more collaboratively together in a trusted and transparent and verifiable form? Uh, and as part of that work, we then identify where are Australia's strengths that we can contribute to that international partnership? And you've seen some nascent signs of that already. So things like rare earths and the agreement between Australia and the United States around how do we collaboratively develop not only the supply but the processing and value-adding of rare earths so that uh, Australia and like-minded countries have a commercially viable alternative uh, to the supply chain, which is increasingly being monopolised uh, by China. Uh, and so there are, there's a, a deal of work to be done, but one of, the, one of the key requirements is that the Commonwealth, uh, in its procurement rules, recognises that long-term partnerships in certain sectors uh, are actually the best way to achieve value for money, as opposed to retreating to the we-must-compete-everything. Uh, because if we don't have that coordinated approach, uh, we will continue to be vulnerable because we won't have done the detailed work to understand the supply chain, understand the potential partners where our strengths lie and how we address the vulnerabilities. And I, again, as a pilot, I come back to James Reason's uh, model of accident causation. You, know, you might have heard the Swiss cheese model. And, and we need to identify what are the areas that we can contribute, where can our allies contribute to making sure we uh, minimise the chance of failure and we mitigate the consequences of failure in our supply chains. And that's the only way I think collectively Australia and like-minded nations will achieve a point where we can have confidence in resilient uh, supply chains for those areas that enable us to be first world nations. John, do you have anything to build on that? Uh, yes, picking up the centre of the last point. Resilience is not going to be effective if we look at it as a single country. We have to look at who we partner with. So in our studies and our workshops, we've already reached out to New Zealand industry, New Zealand government departments, and we're starting to talk to the New Zealand government this Friday. And what we're saying to them is that whilst we might have agreements on how we work together day to day, have you had a conversation of how we would partner up to be mutually interdependent and resilient in the vote of crisis? And so far, the response is no, we haven't had that discussion. If we can get that going and we come up with an idea of a model, then we will approach the Indonesian government. And we're going to have the same conversation there. Because if Indonesia is not resilient in a major global crisis, then in turn, neither are we. So it's working these partnerships, as the Senator said, across our region as a high priority. Shorter supply chains and mutually interdependent trusted supply chains might be a good contribution to that. You asked in part, what are the outcomes? I guess the... The outcomes I'm hoping to see are changed behaviours in critical areas. Uh, and again, I'll come back to PPE because it's been such a topical thing. 
uh, we've had evidence from some of the manufacturers that have kicked in millions of dollars of their own money and capital to stand up a manufacturing capability. But what we're starting to see is global supply chains start to recover some capacity and be able to sell into the international market. We're seeing the private sector, state governments, individual federal departments uh, purchasing and, and you see emails float around by the different vendors pushing their particular product. Uh, and so you start realising that without an offtake agreement, this investment in what's been seen as a critical enabler of our health system will very quickly atrophy uh, unless there is a sustainable agreement uh, around how we coordinate uh, further research and development to have products that perhaps have better export potential, uh, coordinated acquisition across departments so that there's a sufficient offtake agreement to keep those companies viable and scalable in, in a future pandemic or indeed in what we're potentially seeing in Victoria at the moment, you know, that the need for masks and respirators may well go up again significantly. Uh, so it's that change to behaviour as opposed to a blip which causes some concern and then everyone goes back to business as usual. That's what I'm hoping to achieve. Uh, so, David, before we wind up, one last question. How would you characterise this defence's response uh, during the COVID pandemic? Do you have faith in the leadership that they have navigated the waters as best they can? Well, there are two aspects to that, Catherine. I think the response uh, in, or three aspects, the response from a national perspective in supporting state governments has been outstanding and we're still seeing that today with many defence people uh, out on the front line supporting. Uh, secondly, in terms of uh, CASG's support of industry and making sure that uh, there's business continuity and contracts renewed and payments uh, flow through has been very good. Uh, you're aware that I have been critical about the implementation of the 2016 uh, Defence Industry Policy Statement, uh, but I am encouraged by the appointment of Tony Fraser as the head of CASG and of Martin Halloran coming in to look at uh, the industrial landscape. I'm, I'm hoping that given their background uh, and having a specific focus on that, uh, we'll see some of these areas that I identify as deficiencies uh, addressed in the foreseeable future. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for your insights today. Um, I, I must admit the issue of national sovereignty and resilience, it, it, it's just massive and I think a lot of people find it overwhelming. So I like JB's uh, systems approach, which is a, a very defence way of doing things, but defence is also a space that deals with massive, complex, multi-generational programs. So it's good to see that thinking applied at a national government level as well. Once again, thank you both for your insights uh, today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you both. Thanks, Catherine. That's great, thanks. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au.